1: Hello and welcome to the Rugby Renegade podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Pro Athlete Supplementation. Check them out at pas-nutrition.co.uk for all your supplementation needs. And don't forget that subscribers to the Rugby Renegade program get a 40% discount on retail prices. Yes, we are back for episode 30 of the Rugby Renegade podcast. My name is Jamie Bain and today for the second time I interview Christian Thibodeau, expert strength coach uh we spoke to christian uh, i think it was episode 26 or 27 of the podcast uh felt like we could have uh, talked for hours but unfortunately had to get off and train uh as good excuse as any uh so we managed to get him back and talk more about training we go into loads of uh, detail on loads of topics uh, plyometrics um, nervous system different strength training methods so there's loads of great take-home points so how to monitor stress uh, on a budget um uh, loads of things so it's really worth a listen uh check it out and let us know what you think christian uh welcome back it's the the first time we've had someone for a a repeat appearance on the podcast so i really appreciate you um taking the time to talk to us um covered loads of topics last time um but we you know we felt like we didn't really (laughs) didn't really get into everything we wanted to so um It's great to talk to you again.
0: Well, yeah, it's an honor to be back again. I mean, being your first repeat guest, uh, like, it's a great compliment. So I really appreciate being back.
1: Good stuff. Well, um, you know, I think you kind of – you said you enjoyed talking about actual training stuff um, last Mm -hmm. time. So let's get into that. And one of the methods you've – I think you had a DVD uh, out about it a, a while back. was about cluster training. Why don't you sort of tell us uh, how you've used that and, and what you found that to be effective for and, and kind of the best way to, to do it.
0: You know, it, it's a weird timing because I just completed, uh, like a little document, I'm actually going to use it for my upcoming online certification. It's, it's a list of probably every single trading method known to man. So basically every single method loading scheme that I've ever used uh i i put them in a list and it, it's all categorized because i also want uh to tell what well, this method is best with this type of neurotype and whatnot uh, and when i was reviewing all those methods i mean several stood out i mean when we're talking about athletic performance and specifically how to increase strength uh two methods always stood out as my personal favorite i mean i've i've been coaching for 21 years and coach athletes from 28 different sports. And of course, I've used like many different methods uh, throughout the years. Uh, Some I've I've stuck with, some were rotated in and out, some methods I discarded, and then maybe just came back recently. But one method that has always been one of my favorite, and that's always been in my programs, even for building muscle, is clusters. Now uh, clusters, in my opinion, once you have an athlete that is past the beginner stage, I would never use that for beginners unless for technical practice, so some maximum effort. But a true cluster uh, for your listeners, those who don't know what a cluster is, uh, basically a cluster, you use a weight that's around 88 to 92% of your 1RM. doesn't really matter. It's just to give you a range. And uh, normally a weight that you could probably do four, maybe four reps with during a regular set but you're gonna get five to six reps with that weight. How do you do that? Well, you do that by taking a rest period between every repetition. So basically one cluster set is an ensemble of several single reps. So you would like unrack the squat, do a one squat, rack it back, rest for maybe 20 seconds, do a second reps, rack it back, 20 seconds and you would go on until you 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 know that you will not be able to get one more reps in so the goal is to get maybe two more reps than you normally would with a given weight now the rest periods would be around 10 to 20 seconds depending on both the exercise of course it's going to be longer for a squat for a clean for a snatch uh, and could be shorter for a bench press and even shorter for something like a curl if you want to use Curls for clusters, which I've, I've used in the past. Um, so, or it can also be a matter of your neurotype. Like some neurotypes require a longer rest interval, like the type 1A that we discussed, that is built for strength, do need longer rest intervals because they don't want to spike adrenaline too much. But regardless, the basic concept is the same. You're going to do a set of two more reps than you should be able to get with a normal weight. And you do that by taking 10 to 20 seconds of rest. Between a set. Now, what I found is that it, it, that is the most rapid method of increasing strength in my own experience. Uh, I've seen people make drastic gains up to 20 kilos in a lift in three weeks. And these were guys at already an advanced level. I mean, you have several advantages. Uh, the main advantage, of course, is you create more fatigue in the fast-twitch fibers. And as Zetskierowski Z- 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 pointed out, by fatiguing a muscle fibers more, more, you train it more. So by increasing fiber fatigue and also increasing the number of fast-switch fibers that are getting fatigued because you have to increase the number of fibers that are thrown into the set because of the greater fatigue, well, you, you will gain more strength. You also have a greater uh, neurological gain simply from the practice of doing more heavy reps, but also, and this is a really misunderstood positive of clusters, you get to set up five or six times in a set. I mean, we've all squatted big weights, and oftentimes, big squats are missed before the squat even start. I mean, you're testing your one RM, you walk out with a bar, and either you walk out and you lose control or you don't establish tension before walking out when you're unwracking the bar, then right off the bat, you, your body goes soft, you can't reestablish tension and you will be psyched out by, because the weight will feel super heavy. Now with clusters, you are actually practicing that setup five or six times in a set under maximum loading. At first, the first week you do it, your performance might actually suck just because that walk out or unracking the bar in a bench press takes a lot out of you but the more you practice it the better you become at that phase of the lift which is so important yet under uh, uh, underestimated uh, and, and undertrained so that is another way that clusters can increase strength uh, now the origin of clusters I mean because it's nothing special really it, it comes from olympic weightlifting because that's basically how olympic lifters train when they do a snatch, they drop the barbell on the floor, they reset, do another rep, and they might have five, 10, 15 seconds between reps. They always train that way. Uh, and strength athletes eventually pick that up and starting applying it on the strength clip, and it works great. It's one of those methods that is always in my programs. Uh, and it's even on my muscle building programs, because if you are an athlete who wants to gain size, but you want it to be functional size, not like the uh, sarcoplasmic hypertrophy or irrational hypertrophy that might actually slow down the speed of contraction because you are creating more friction between the muscle fibers. Uh, you are the only hypertrophy you're getting from clusters is pure fiber hypertrophy, and mostly in the fast twitch fibers. So, so it, it is truly functional and transferable to sport. Uh, so I included it in in. Like quote unquote specific bodybuilding phases because it's a way of getting the volume in while keeping the intensity in. So an advanced athlete will be able to get some volume in, triggering muscle growth in the fibers while at the same time improving lifting form, improving how we unracks the bar, increasing neurological factors involved in strength production. So so it's that's the reason why it's such a great method, and it, to this day it's one of my Three all-time favorite methods with with wave loading and with uh, isometrics.
1: Yeah, some really good points there, especially about the um, you know just even the practicing of, of racking and unracking the the bar and, and getting your setup right. Um, but I found it interesting you said it, it's it's a good way of getting kind of high volume and high intensity. because That's how I've always yep. used it. In, in sort of I've periodized it in times when you want to be getting high volume and high intensity at the same time. Um, and I, I find, with me personally, you get or I get quick results with it, but then I tend to burn out. So, don't know, is that something yep. to do with the, my neural typing, or
0: no? Uh, I think there are two reasons for it. First of all, you have to understand that the more powerful a method is, the more draining it is. I mean, it, it just goes to, it just makes sense, right? Something that uh, let's let's take alcohol you take a drink that has a higher alcohol concentration, well, it will get you drunk much faster. But you will feel like crap the next day if you take the same amount of drinks. So, for example, if you take five, uh, five American beers that have 3.2% alcohol, or you take five Canadian beer that have 5%, or you take five British beers that have 7%, Or five Irish beer that probably have like 50 percent alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's the same amount of liquid, the same volume, right? But the effect is completely different. I mean, the the five American beers might make you tipsy, but they they won't make you drunk. But 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 take the higher concentration that those five beers will get you a lot drunker and the next day you're going to feel a lot worse. It's the same thing with clusters. They are so powerful that if you treat them as you would a regular training method and you do the same amount of volume, let's say you do five sets of clusters, of course you're going to crash. It's it's too much work. I mean, with clusters, it's some, some people who are uh, like more fragile neurologically, so they can crash more easily. Normally what I do is I will do like two regular sets, like fairly heavy triples. Not all out, just fairly heavy triple. So maybe the first set is 85%, second set is 88%. So that, that has actually some volume in, but it also amp- uh, activate my nervous system. But it also tells me which weight I'm gonna be using for the clusters. Now, if I'm fragile, I will only do one cluster set. Because it's so powerful, you will get a training effect. Uh, now, if you can tolerate a bit more volume, then you're gonna do two cluster sets and maybe one regular set of three. Uh, At the most, the most I've used with with regular, non-enhanced people is three cluster sets. Yet the original work, uh, for example, by Polykin, was doing five sets of clusters. I mean, I've done that when I was a kid, and after two weeks, I crashed. Uh, And that's the thing, though. But with any neurological-based method, the clusters being one of the most neurologically driven method out there, you will find that normally after four weeks you crash. So you can probably perform super well for two weeks, you still feel good on that third week, but on the fourth week you start to crash. And that's one of the reasons why Westside Barbell changes their max effort lift every two weeks or sometimes even faster. So with neurological methods I find that it's best to rotate them in and out every three weeks because if you keep doing them for more than three weeks you will burn down even if your nervous system is really resilient so the num- no, number of set is one thing but also the frequency at which you are changing these methods and the problem with those super effective training methods clusters wave loading uh, isometrics or using overload eccentric super powerful method Rapid strength gain. The big problem is that they are so effective that you become addicted. You want more strength. I mean, first week I'm gaining 10 kilos. I want more. I'm adding another 10 kilos. Right off the bat, you're already seeing yourself squatting 50 kilos more. So you want to keep doing it. Wait longer than you should. Neurological intense methods, two or three weeks tops. Then you have to rotate them in and out. Maybe with something more explosive, or a method that is still neurological but a bit less draining, like isometrics, like functional isometrics, like reverse band heavy lifting, something like that, just to give the nervous system a rest.
1: Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, definitely. Obviously, the kind of more the more demanding, the more effective. The you know the more careful you've got to be with the way you program and the way you absolutely.
0: Use it. But you know, it's the same problem with plyometrics, especially in the U.S. Uh, I mean, when, when plyometrics, and when I say plyometrics, I'm referring mostly to uh, like the more intense plyometrics, like depth jumps, like hurdle jumps, stuff where you actually have a large accumulation of kinetic energy from falling down that you can use in the subsequent jump, or jump squats, or anything very jumping with very high intensity. Now, in 1988, the Soviet Union uh, brought. Or or gave the invitation to several international coaches, including several U.S. coaches, to go watch their athletes train and ask questions to their coach and whatnot. And the only thing that seemingly these Soviet athletes were doing different were plyometrics. So right off the bat, Americans being like they are, well, they assumed that this was the secret of Soviet athletic dominance. In reality, it was just better selection of athletes. Uh, But so they assume that plyometrics was the secret. Now don't get me wrong, plyometrics are effective, but they use a typical North American mentality. We, We have that in Canada also is, I'm gonna do lots of volume of it. So people started doing like hundreds of ground contacts per sessions, twice, three times a week, way, way, way too much volume. Whereas if you look at the Soviet literature, like very intense jumping, it's treated Exactly like maximum effort lifting. You wouldn't do 100 reps with 90% on a squat when you don't do 100% depth jump or or high-intensity jump variations. So you have the same thing that you actually are blurring the results and you might lead to overtraining and injuries. So the more something is neurological, the less volume you need to get a training effect. Uh, a bit of, of an intense stimulus, of course. Uh, so, so that, to, to me, is the number one mistake, is if something is good, I'm going to do a shit ton of it. Yeah. And that is likely a mistake, because if it's good, you need less of it.
1: Yeah, and that, that's the problem we have over here, the kind of more is better mentality, which um, yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. we need to improve I mean, because
0: let, Let's look at plyometrics, right? You, you don't get fatigued when you do them, right? I mean, if I do five depth jumps, I'm not fatigued especially if you're a rugby player who, who has awesome work capacity. You don't feel out of breath. You don't have lactic acid buildup. You don't have neurological fatigue either. So you pretty much feel like you just did nothing. Uh, so coaches know that because they're old school, if it doesn't hurt, it's not working. I mean, you, you, I'm going to make a man out of you. So that's why they are just throwing tons and tons of volume. And only do those who are genetically gifted can tolerate so they get good despite the training not because of it but how many injuries are you causing
1: yeah exactly and i think that that is a massive problem in rugby like say the <clears throat> the nature of the athlete they they like to feel like they have worked so sometimes when you do mm-hmm. that kind of explosive session they don't feel like they have or, or sometimes they'll they'll try and reduce the rest or or do more reps so they feel like they've had a conditioning element when it hasn't really it's kind of overloaded them it hasn't really Improve what we're what we're trying to improve. So it's a big a big uh, lesson for for players to, to learn there. Um, and one and thing...
0: it's a th- it's a really tough mindset to change. Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: Uh, one thing you've written about in the past, Christian, is um, getting stronger using using singles and kind of building work capacity. Yep. Uh, And I also remember you writing about um, how a lot of kind of strength endurance programming doesn't actually develop strength. It tends to turn into hypertrophy. Just tell us um, your kind of thoughts on that.
0: Well, I've always been a fan of of very low rep training. Of course, it probably comes from my background as an Olympic weightlifter. Uh, But the way I see it, and I see eye to eye with Louis Simon in that regard, is that the maximum effort method is the best way to build strength. Uh, It has the strongest impact on the nervous system. uh, And also, it has a great impact on desensitizing the Golgi tendon organs. And the the Golgi tendon organs, of course, you know what what they are, but maybe not all your listeners know. Uh, They are protective mechanisms that, that protects your muscles against yourself. So they are limiting how much force the muscles can produce because... Uh, you want to prevent like tearing yourself apart by producing too much force. But these are so overly conservative that an average human being can use about 30% of his strength potential. Uh, a pretty well-trained athlete might be able to use 50%. Uh, an international level strength athlete, like an Olympic weightlifter, maybe 80%. And a world champion, maybe up to 90%. Uh, so if you are practicing heavy lifting, in the 90% plus range uh, then you are desensitizing the GTOs same thing that that's also why i like heavy partials that's why i like isometrics because these all contribute to desensitizing the Golgi tendon organ basically uh, allowing you to use a greater proportion of your potential now uh, singles I mean, i'm not talking necessarily like all out max effort i'm talking like 90% 95% effort for that day Uh, it's actually safe, because you only have one rep, you can totally focus on that one rep, focus on on technical perfection, creating maximum tension. Whereas when you do two reps, one or three reps, or four reps, or five reps, the more reps, the, the more chance you are at screwing up, because if you do five reps with a heavy weight, the chances of doing one erroneous rep that lead to injuries, it's much greater. I'm not saying that you have to do singles, but you absolutely can get a lot stronger with doing singles, doubles, and triples. Uh, my, my favorite number of reps when training a non-lifting athlete for strength, like not a powerlifter, not an Olympic weightlifter, is three reps. Uh, I find that it is the perfect blend of max effort and getting some volume in. Uh, but once in a while with some type, I still like to do singles. Uh, because it is the quickest way to get stronger. Uh, But then again, for rugby players, the disadvantage for some positions is that it will not contribute to building muscle mass. In fact, you could actually, if you stick to only doing singles, you could atrophy, atrophy while still getting stronger for a brief period until eventually you atrophy so much that you lose strength. But in a sport where you actually want to carry some additional body mass, triples are more effective than singles
1: okay cool and um obviously squatting will be you know a huge part of your training programs especially for athletes um but there's a there's a lot of debate about the best way to squat um Mm -hmm. what's your kind of opinion on that is it kind of horses for courses you know different athletes depending on their biomechanics will squat different ways or, or and or um you know, a squat a certain way to develop a certain, uh, physical yeah. capacity.
0: Uh, I, I would say it's a bit of both. I mean, some physiques are obviously best suited for some types of squat. For example, if you have, well, and if you work with competitive athletes, or of fairly high level, chances are that you are dealing with people with longer limbs, uh, because longer limbs in general are better for team sports. Uh, rugby, American football, basketball, um, even sprinting, which is not a team sport, obviously, but it, it's still advantages. So so having longer limbs normally in sports is an advantage. Uh, if you're talking about lifting, having shorter limbs is an advantage. If you're an Olympic weightlifter, if you're a powerlifter, shorter limbs is an advantage, except for deadlifting. Now, if you're an athlete, and, and you are working with high-level athletes just through the, the process of natural selection, you're probably going to work more with athletes with longer limbs, especially if you're in Europe. If you are in Europe, people tend to be more long-limbed. If if you go to Asia, they tend to be longer torso, shorter limbs. Of course, there are exceptions, but it's a general tendency. Uh, So these guys, when they do the regular back squat, uh, they will tend to use the posterior chain more, which is great if you want to build the posterior chain. But if the athlete requires more quadriceps development and strength, then using a front squat or a zercher squat might be a better idea. So, so the type of squat one is doing, where, it, where it, it's a low bar, a high bar, uh, a front squat, a zercher squat, will depend on, on, on which muscles are lagging. Now, if I'm training in a phase where I want to maximize strength, then I will use the type of squat that better fits the person's mechanics. So if you have long limbs, I'm gonna use a low bar, more power squat to maximize your overall performance because it's gonna be the lift with the greater absolute intensity. There's a difference between absolute and relative intensity, and that is very important in my program. Absolute intensity refers to how much weight you are moving. Relative intensity is how much weight you are moving on a movement in relation to your maximum on that lift. So for example, uh, I might be, like, let's say, front squatting 180 kilos, which would be like 90%, or I could use 210 on a back squat, which would also be 90%. So the relative intensity is the same, but the absolute intensity is higher for the back squat, which is important because oftentimes during deload phase with an athlete with a very short off season so they don't they, they can't afford to waste one week not getting stronger and instead of lowering the relative intensity during a deload I will decrease the absolute intensity while maintaining relative intensity for example I could go from uh, a a regular deadlift traditional deadlift at 90% and during the deload would go to a romanian deadlift with 90% so the relative intensity is still high, so the muscle demand is still high, but the absolute intensity is much lower, which deloads the nervous system and the skeletal system. So it's a way to deload with, while maintaining intensity when you only have a brief period of time to work with an athlete. Now, so normally if I want to maximize strength, I, I would use the lift that better fits that person morphology, but I would have a second squat session in a week where I would use the movement w- that would target the weaker muscle. So for example, a front squat if you are a longer limb. So that would be a main difference. If I'm talking solely about building muscle, I want to, like I'm in an hypertrophy phase, I'm going to focus on the lift that will target the person's weaker muscle. Now. It, also, it can also be periodized like, and it also go and and hand because normally the hypertrophy phases are earlier in the off season so in the general preparation phase you would use a squat variation that targets your weakness because off season early off season general physical preparation phase is all about fixing your weaknesses specific preparation is more about amplifying your strength that's where you would switch to your stronger squat so that's one of important reason. Now there's also the, another issue that we must consider about squatting depth. Like, Is full squat the only way you should be squatting? Is half squat to be avoided? I don't believe so. A recent study has shown that half squats increase speed running and jumping more so than full squat. That doesn't mean that you should drop full squats but it means that half squats have their place in the training program again it's all about periodization
1: yeah if i think once you
0: have built a strong base of squatting through full squats and you're moving to the sport specific phase it's okay to include half squatting to be more specific to your sport and have a greater transfer of force to your actual movement
1: yeah i think you've summed that up really well and it's a it's a great lesson for any young strength and conditioning coaches that um you know your thought process behind what exercises you use that there's always got to be a reasoning for it it's not just oh you've heard you know mark repto no. say you should do a low bar back you know powerlifting back squat or you know you've been following olympic weightlifters who you know do heavy front squats um it's it's got to have a purpose and justification to at the end improve that performance
0: you, you use the exact word justification if you cannot justify every single choice of exercise in a program well if there's one exercise you can't justify you know uh, uh, it might not be better I'm just uh, I always use squats well then don't put it in the program you have to be able to justify the selection of an exercise not just in a general setting but also for a specific person because for someone like for me for myself during the earlier general preparation phase, like when I was an Olympic weightlifter, I would use a lot more for back squatting because I'm quads dominant. So for me, the weak muscles are the posterior chain. So I would actually use low bar squat in my early off season. And then in a, like the early specific phase, I would, and late general phase, I would use high bar back squat focused. And then the more I would move into the specific phase, I would switch to more front squats. I don't need to front squat to be good at front squatting because it's my strength. So if my back squat goes up, my front squat will go up. So if you take uh, the opposite, a guy with longer limbs, if his his front squat goes up, normally the back squat will go up because you're addressing the weakness. Anyway, if he's deadlifting, he's going to work the posterior chain anyway. Yeah. Uh,
1: And and that brings brings me on to another interesting point how how long do you stick with exercises for um or how do you decide when to change to a different exercise
0: well it it depends on the person it it, is neurotype and it also depends uh on, on the type of training you're doing now if you're doing neurological based training you will need to change the exercise more often every three weeks but it doesn't need to be a drastic change doesn't need to go from from low bar to high bar. It could simply be to go from low bar to low bar box squat to low bar low box squat and back to low bar back squat. Just a slight difference. Or it could simply be still doing a low bar but using a slightly different stance width. Or it could be using a different bar, for example. Or it could be uh, adding change to the – just doing something different. Uh, if it's a neurological-based phase or heavier lifting because the nervous system will uh, will adapt. And, and what you will notice, and I've noticed this myself, because, uh, because of my uh, kidney condition, I have to take my blood pressure every day. And I started taking it also post-workout to see which kind of workout had the greatest impact on my blood pressure. And one thing I noticed is that after three weeks, the third week, uh, on the same movement, train heavy, my blood pressure would always be higher. And to me, that's a great indication that the nervous system is getting tired because it's in overdrive all the time. So if you are in a neurological phase, you might want to switch out squatting style or or make a slight modification, maybe just uh, stance using a box, using a different method every two or three weeks. If it's more of a, a structural phase, like doing functional hypertrophy sets of anywhere between five to eight reps for example then you can probably stick with the same type of squat for five maybe six weeks uh if you are doing more of a endurance type of training like 12 to 20 reps it could be longer but i'm not sure you want to do that for long but it could be maintained for longer now there's also the issue uh, of neurotype now uh Type 1A, so the 1A and 1B, so the super competitive people, extroverted, um, make the best athlete normally, then they need variation a bit more often. Now, the 1B especially, those people, okay, how to tell if you're 1B? One, you are naturally very competitive, you hate to lose, and you are naturally explosive. Not explosive through training, you are naturally explosive. These guys need to change their exercises quite often, every two or three weeks. Now, the uh, type 1A, very, also very competitive, but they are super vocal. Uh, They are a lot stronger than they are fast. So they're not naturally explosive, but they are naturally strong. These guys can stick with the same movement longer, maybe four weeks, as long as they keep lifting heavy uh now if you have you move to the right of the spectrum those who are more type two b's and three Uh, two b's would be more introverted they like the mind muscle connection they like the pump Uh, they are not really competitive they put a lot of importance uh, on what people think about them Uh, they are not naturally people you will find in rugby for example because uh, these people prefer to uh not compete in sport because they don't like to be judged Uh, but you can still find some of them now these guys and also the type three the super introverted those who love to follow a schedule they are more endurance athlete type now these two guys can stick for the same with the same movement for heck of a long time actually they do better if they stick to the one type of movement they like doing so if they like high bar back squat. They will actually get stronger and stronger and stronger the longer they stick with it. Whereas the more competitive those who will who you will find in strength and power sports the most need to change their exercises more often. Otherwise they will get bored or have a, a neural crash.
1: Again, it's it's great to hear your kind of thought process behind you know why you do things and obviously going back into the, the neurotyping stuff. It's really interesting. And also this was was my next question. It's not. Um, yeah. It's not just off the back of what you said, but you, you mentioned you know monitoring your blood pressure, and it's something yep. I was going to ask. And I, th- I think you have written about it a little bit before. Is uh, kind of easy ways for uh, we touched on a lot about stress in the last podcast as well. And like, yep. are there some easy ways you can t- recommend our athletes to monitor their stress so they can adapt their training based on? Yeah, that?
0: Uh, the, the blood pressure works great for. Uh, type 1A, 1B, and 2As, which these are the guys you will actually work with. These are the guys who are athletes. When I say athletes, I mean power sports, strength and power sports, rugby, American football, basketball, baseball, sprinting, throwing, boxing, MMA. These kind of sports, not endurance athletes, for example. Type 2Bs would be more bodybuilders, uh, and type 3 would be more endurance athletes. But for the athletes we are working with, we're normally thinking about one A, one B, and two A's. And these guys, blood pressure is one of the number one symptom of excessive training stress. I take my blood pressure every morning, and I know right off the bat if I was excessive the the, 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 the previous day. My my normal blood pressure, for example, is, uh, let's say uh, 110 over 70, for example. Well, if I wake up one morning and it's 115 over 80, well, it's a probably a normal response to a very heavy workout. If it's 125 over 85, 90, that was too much. So it's a, it's a great feedback loop because you, you don't always feel bad. Uh, another symptom uh, would be uh, well, I, I like uh, HRV, like heart rate variability training, uh, to tell you the stress of the workout because heart rate is closely related to uh, how the, the the workout affected training stress. How fast. Can you get back to your resting heart rate after a session? Tells me if the session was excessive or not. Uh, A a very good test to know if your nervous system is fried or if it's okay is to take your resting heart rate in the morning over 60 seconds. Then you dip your hand in ice cold water and you take your heart rate over 60 seconds while the hand is in ice cold water. And if your nervous system is in good working shape, so in a good place to be, then you will have a difference of about 10 beats per minute. Uh, If it's less than that, if it's say like three or it doesn't even go up or five or six, then your nervous system is tired. It's less responsive. So that tells me that it might be time for neurological deload. It's over-responsive, goes up by 15, 20. To me, it means you are in a super state to go very heavy or try a PR, but you're on the verge of of crashing. So you don't want to stay there. So that's another uh, element. Or you can just simply take your resting heart rate in the morning. When I was starting out as a coach, the two measures we used every morning was resting heart rate and uh, body temperature. So these were the two uh, sizes, uh, two, uh, two tests we use with every day with our athletes. Uh, and if heart rate spikes in the morning, for example, if your normal resting heart rate is sixty, and all of a sudden it's seventy for no good reason, then you probably are on the verge of like doing too much. Uh, if uh, if temp- temp- body temperature goes down probably indicates that you're doing too much volume, or that you're not eating enough, could be one of the two. And that's because your body is decreasing its output of T3 thyroid hormone to protect itself because it feels you are burning too much energy for what you are giving your body. So it's either you're doing too much volume, or you're not eating enough and your body is slowing down it's thyroid hormone to reduce energy expenditures it's a protective mechanism so when your body temperature goes down about one degree and to me it indicates either too much volume or ina- inadequate nutrition
1: that's great some really uh, some really good uh, methods that you know our athletes well, can one, one apply. book
0: one book I can recommend is uh, science of sports training by Thomas Kurtz
1: Car, yeah, uh, key, I know that one
0: yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah many 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 different tests simple tests that any coach can use
1: that's great uh, in the in the last podcast we we sort of spoke about what we can learn from kind of old-school uh, you know strong men and, and bodybuilders and things yeah. um, kind of I, I think sometimes bodybuilders get you know a bit of a bad rap but I think there are things we can learn and you sort of Having competed yourself, been on kind of both sides of the fence as an athlete and a weightlifter and a bodybuilder, what do you think we can learn from modern bodybuilders?
0: Uh, well, uh, if you compete in a non tested sport, how to use drugs. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, but from a training perspective, I think that the number one thing is bodybuilders are great at, at the mind muscle connection because most bodybuilders are 2Bs. So they are all about sensation, feeling the muscle. So, so a smart bodybuilder like John Meadows, for example, is great, or, or Charles Glass. These guys are great at, at making small technical changes to basic exercise to increase the recruitment of a muscle. They also are great at uh, fixing weak links, because bodybuilding, it's all about that, how to fix a lagging muscle. So they are not only good at selecting the right exercise, but also coming up with the best strategies to fix a lagging muscle group. So in my opinion, that's what most athletes can learn from bodybuilders. Uh, Also, of course, there's the issue of nutrition. Uh, Of course, bodybuilders tend, especially the smart ones, they, they tend to be more in tune about the advances and the changes in nutrition. And I think that every athlete, even though I know in uh, in rugby, for example, uh, I don't know how it is in your part of the wood, but uh, when I played, uh, a friend, uh, one of my teammates went to play in France, and he was ridiculed for eating a healthy diet. Like he was eating like super healthy, and the other players were making fun of him. And he, they were making fun of him because he had a six-pack and, uh, and he was a forward. Uh, he, he So he was a hooker, actually. So, so – uh, I don't know how it is, but any athlete could learn about eating better because eating better will always improve your performance, always. Yeah,
1: definitely.
0: And also longevity because people don't realize that, but a diet can be pro-inflammatory and actually increase joint aches and pains, uh, which of course will delay recovery and make performance harder, performing harder.
1: Yeah, definitely. I totally agree. I think um, what you said in terms of their ability to pick the the right exercise and, and yep. improve weak links, that's you know, really important from a rehab point of view.
0: And making modification. When we're dealing with athletes, again, most athletes, especially the good athletes, those who are the best on your teams, they are normally type 1A or type 1B. These guys are all about moving weight from point A to point B. Depending on if they are 1A or 1B, they will have a different strategy. 1A are great at producing maximum tension. So they are strong because they're creating tons of tension so they're super super stable and recruit lots of muscle. 1Bs use more momentum. So they will still lift heavy but they will use stretch reflex, they will use acceleration to move the weight through the sticking point. But regardless of their way they are beating the weight, they are all about moving the most weight from point A to point B. These guys are not that in tune with which muscle is doing the work as long as they're getting from point A to point B they're happy whereas that approach is not conductive to being able to fix weaknesses in fact it will over amplify your strength and will de-emphasize your weaknesses so that's where some assistance work done quote unquote bodybuilding style to fix your weaknesses is the right move but if you don't have the bodybuilding mindset when you do these sets it's kind of pointless because you will still compensate by using your strength.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting you said that because that's kind of something I've I've seen when you when you kind of slow a movement down, they they can often struggle. Whereas when they do it, yep. like you say, as explosively from A to B as quick as possible, um, they're actually very efficient at that. Um, and it brings us back to eccentric training. Um, and you know, what what are your your favorite methods to sort of improve eccentric
0: strength? Oh, there's many ways to, to look at this, right? Because eccentric strength, in my opinion, is the most underdeveloped strength type in sports. I mean, uh, and to me, I mean, it's well known that the greater your eccentric strength is relative to your concentric strength, the lower is your risk of injuries. Being stronger eccentrically is what helps protect you against injuries so, so you want to emphasize eccentric strength development but then again just like concentric strength there are many different methods because and it's all through the spectrum you could go with like sub maximal eccentric with very slow tempo you could go with an eccentric overload like using more weight than you can lift uh, doing using a control but not slow speed or you could have an over speed eccentric where you actually are trying to speed de- speed on the way down, even using resistant bands to accelerate you downward faster than gravity. Now, each of these types have their own benefits for an athlete and they have their place in a training program. Now, the slower eccentrics, like using a submaximum weight and using a slow eccentric tempo, like anywhere between five to 10 seconds, depending on your objective, and then doing a normal. Uh, concentric action, that will, of course, build lots of muscles, but it will also build tendon resiliency. So it will increase the, the, the resiliency of the tendons. So it's good method to use earlier in the preparation phase, but you can't do too much of it because it can contribute to making you slower because it it can build up so much muscle that it might actually detract from your explosive work. Uh, and it also negates the use of stretch reflex think about it the more the faster the eccentric is the more kinetic energy is being accumulated and when you switch from eccentric to concentric that kinetic energy that is being stored in tendon or muscle is now being used to potentiate the concentric action so basically The more kinetic energy you accumulate during the eccentric, the faster and stronger the concentric will be. So that's why many people use a rebound when squatting. It's a way to accelerate down, to accumulate more kinetic energy, also using the stretch reflex, of course, to be stronger in the concentric. That's also the principle behind depth jump. You are landing from a height which builds up lots of kinetic energy that can be used in a subsequent action. It's not just about the stretch reflex because if you pause for three seconds during a depth jump, you will still jump higher than if you're doing a regular jump. And the stretch reflex is pretty much lost after two seconds. So it's not just about stretch reflex. It's about the accumulation of kinetic energy that can be used in the concentric contraction. So if you're doing very slow eccentric and you're doing that all the time, you are detraining your capacity to absorb kinetic energy and use it in the reversal. So it's good to build muscle. It's good to prepare your structures to withstand the more intense eccentric actions, but it should not be the bigger part of your training protocol. So that's why I don't necessarily like slower tempo lifting with athletes, except for a period about four to six weeks early in the off season just to prepare the bodies for the harder stuff now eccentric overload eccentric you can either use like a partner that you know you put like let's say 105 percent on the bar and you do the eccentric by yourself and your partner helps you lift it up for example you could use weight releasers or strength hooks that, that you can add weight to the bar and when you squat down, the the hooks touch the floor and they unrack from the bar, so you can overload the eccentric, or you can do manually eccentric. Let's say you're bench pressing, you have 80% on the bar, while your partner will push down on the bar during the eccentric and release during the concentric, so you overload the eccentric. Now, all these methods have one thing in common, it forces you to lower more weight than you can lift. Now, that method is great, to desensitize the gto's so again it can contribute to making you stronger by desensitizing the golgi tendon organs but just like with the slow eccentric you are also detraining your capacity to accumulate kinetic energy and use it during concentric actions so if you would only do that it could also make you slower it will make you stronger but it doesn't necessarily make you faster That's why you have to convert that with over-speed eccentrics. Over-speed eccentrics can be plyometrics, depth jumps, squat jump series. Squat jump series is you do a jump squat and as soon as you land, you jump again. As opposite to regular jump squat where you jump, you land, you reset, and then you jump again. But it can also be regular squats or regular bench press where you voluntarily speed up during the eccentric And try to have the more rapid turnaround from eccentric to concentric possible. That will teach your body to store kinetic energy and use it. Of course, you need the proper preparation to be able to move to that type of eccentric because it's it's highly stressful on the tendons, of course, because you're storing more energy in in, uh, those tendons. So they are more solicitated. So, So these are the three broad ways of doing eccentrics for an athlete. Uh, and none of them should be done for long because they are both, in their ways, traumatizing on the body or nervous system. And like anything neural, after four weeks, the gains are pretty much vanished. So so these are the three ways of training Decentric if you're an athlete.
1: Yeah, that's really really interesting. And I think going back to what you said about the, the use of resistance bands, I think mm-hmm. uh, as far as I'm aware, you're one of the first people to kind of mention it. That it's it, people just consider it as overloading the concentric portion, obviously, because it gets yeah. in, resistance yeah. increases you press out. Um, yeah. But like you said, it actually increases the eccentric portion because it's pulling Absolutely. the bar back down to you. So it's yeah. that's yeah. something yeah. people should consider when kind of programming with that.
0: Absolutely. So you can do two things. So you can so. so because of what you just mentioned. Because the bands, it's not like, bands are not like chains. Chains, it's just dead added weight. So it's just accommodating resistance, increasing the amount of weight on the later portion of range of motion. Whereas bands actually have a component, where they're actually trying to throw you down. Bands have an accelerative component to them. They are When you do the eccentric, they try to throw you down with acceleration faster than gravity. Uh, so you can, for that reason, bands will always be more stressful than any other type of lifting. Because let's, let's look at the two ways you can do lift with bands. The first way is you control the eccentric. If you control the eccentric, well, you have to break or fight again against the acceleration of the, uh, of the band. So you have to produce a lot more force and tension than during a regular rep even if at equal weight. So that puts a lot more strain on the muscles, which makes recovery a lot longer. Or you can actually use the band to speed up the eccentric, so that you can actually build more kinetic energy to have a plyometric effect. Now if you do that, you have a much greater impact on the nervous system as regular lifting, and also a much greater impact on the tendons. So regardless of how you do your reps with a band, it's always more stressful than regular lifting. That's why you can't do it for more than three weeks normally. It's better to switch to chains after that if you want to keep accommodating resistance.
1: That's that's really good, really interesting. Um, and, and while you while you touch on that, look, uh, an, an old technique that I I learned from you uh, I used in the past is. Um, uh, tempo contrast training, where yeah, you, you yeah, yeah. vary the tempo within the sets. Why don't, you, why don't you talk about that and the kind of idea yeah. behind that?
0: Uh, as I mentioned, it, it's great timing because I just wrote the, the resume of about 400 training methods. So it's pretty, it's pretty fresh in my mind. Now, uh, tempo contrast, for, for your listeners, it's basically contrasting slow and fast reps in a set. Normally, it's like two of each too slow, too fast, too slow, too fast. That's a normal uh, tempo contrast set. Now, the slow reps would have both a slow eccentric and a slow concentric, like something like five seconds up, five seconds down, and the fast reps, you would try to be as explosive as possible. Now, there are several benefits. Of course, depending on what, which type of exercises you are using that method with. So if I'm using a tempo contrast on big compound movements like a squat, for example, the advantage is more about learning to build tension and produce tension. Because what and when you work with again athletes, especially the high-skill athletes who are naturally explosive, they suck at creating tension when doing the big lifts. Because If they create maximum tension, let's say I'm squatting, right? I'm squatting, I'm squeezing the life out of the bar. I'm squeezing my upper back, my rhomboids, squeezing my shoulder blades together. I'm trying to bring my elbows to my side to activate the lats. I'm rooting my feet into the floor, trying to externally rotate at the hip. I'm squeezing my abs as much as possible. That is maximum tension, and you should maintain that throughout the whole exercise. That makes it more effective and safer. But if you are an athlete who's naturally explosive, that goes against your nature. So you will naturally try to stay looser, more relaxed, because it will, more, it will be easier to use the rebound and stretch reflex. The analogy I could give you is, when you're producing maximum tension, you become a baseball bat. Uh, but when an, an explosive athlete wants to be a whip. So it's two different realities. So by doing tempo contrast you can actually practice maintaining maximum tension with the slow reps and then on the fast reps you can just try to keep that feeling of tension but now while being explosive because you can be explosive and you can use a stretch reflex while being fully tense it's just a matter of practicing it so if i'm practicing doing the slow reps by maintaining tension, you're telling your brain, okay, this is the type of tension I want, and you can transfer that feeling to the fast reps. It's much easier for a good athlete to copy a body feeling than to copy a guideline, so, so to apply a guideline. So that's the main benefit, in my opinion, when we're working on a big compound movement. Of course, you're also increasing time under tension, uh, you are also on the slow reps, you are strengthening every portion the range of motion equally. Uh, let me explain. Uh, uh, an explosive athlete, his natural strategy to lift big weights is to create maximum acceleration from the start because that acceleration will allow him to blast through the sticking point, okay? So that's the first way to go through a sticking point. The second way is to grind to a sticking point, which is a strategy that less explosive athletes will use. Now, an, an, an athlete who naturally tends to use acceleration will have several points in a range of motion that will be relatively under-trained. Because if I'm producing lots of acceleration at the start, then I, my body learns to not keep producing maximum force throughout the range of motion because it doesn't need to, all right? It doesn't need to because the acceleration is do, the momentum created by the acceleration is doing the job. So you don't need maximum force production. If I'm going slow on purpose, I have to produce maximum tension at every point in the range of motion because now I don't have the benefit of the momentum to help me go up, see what I mean? So for an athlete, that will allow him to be stronger throughout the whole range of motion. And then you have the fast rep, so you don't detrain your capacity to use a stretch reflex and go fast. So that's really effective. Now, with the, uh, if, you're doing an, if you're an athlete, you might not want to do eight reps, you might do only four reps, like slow, slow, fast, fast, for example, during an, an intensification phase. During an accumulation phase, you might go slow, slow, fast, fast, slow, slow, fast, fast, for example. Now, if you're using that method on isolation exercise, the the main benefit of the slow rep is to work on that mind-muscle connection. When I'm doing a slow squeezing contraction, it's much easier to get that feel in that target muscle. And then when you do the fast rep, you can control and you can copy that feeling. So... For someone who has a hard time feeling a muscle contracting, it's also a very good method. And remember, if you can't feel a muscle contracting in an exercise, you can't really isolate it, so you can't fix a weakness. So that's the first benefit for muscle building. The second benefit is those super slow contractions create an occlusion effect. Occlusion means that blood cannot come inside the muscle. When the muscle is contracted hard, Blood flow cannot come into the muscle. it will go toward the muscle, but it can only enter during the relaxation phases of the rep. So when I'm doing explosive reps, then blood can come in because the muscle is not contracting hundred percent at all points because of momentum. But when I'm doing constant tension, slow and squeeze rep, there's never any relaxation. So what happened is that 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 this occlusion effect leads to an accumulation of lactic acid and a deprivation of oxygen. Both of these factors release growth factors, IGF-1, mechanical growth factors, chemical elements that trigger muscle growth. Now what happens is that when you finally release tension during the fast reps, now blood rushes in, but it's reactive hyperemia, even more blood Then normal comes into the muscle because the body panics. I've been deprived of oxygen. I need a lot of it. But it doesn't because the reps are so fast. It doesn't have time to exit the muscle to clear the waste product, lactic acid. And then you switch back to the slow reps and you keep piling on lactic acid, releasing even more growth factors so so that's why the tempo contrast method is so effective at building muscle mass and also it's one of the most painful uh method when it comes to isolation exercise when we're talking about lactic acid build up do that on leg extension and you will shoot me
1: <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a great technique I've, I've used it a lot and just out have interest going back to your um your resume of training protocols that you've uh, put together is that something you're going to release
0: Uh, Well, it's going to be – the first release will be as part of my uh, online certification that will be released in in early December. Uh, But I I fully plan on releasing it as a standalone document. But I want to beef it up because right now it's more for functional purposes because in my certification, I explain how to program – based on someone's neurotype. So I needed a list of all the methods because I said, okay, you're planning a session, here are the methods you can use with that neurotype, for example. Yeah. If I'm in an accumulation phase, in a general preparation phase, then and I'm a, I'm a type 1A, these are the methods I can use. But I need a list for people to be able to refer to. And I briefly Discuss these methods. I give a brief description and what these are good for, but it's not exhaustive because otherwise it would be 400 pages long <laughs> I mean just the listing in a brief description is 60 pages long But I, I couldn't see like releasing it if I beef it up with like video examples of the most important techniques uh, And maybe more in-depth explanations. Yeah, that, that's something well, it's already done So it's it's not complicated to release it yeah. in another form yeah, well, I think it's going to be because there's there's over over 400 methods. Okay. Of course I include rep schemes in there like pyramids like uh, wave loading stuff like that but uh, it, it's it's really exhaustive.
1: Yeah. I well, I definitely buy it. So <laughs> Yeah. Um now we discussed um how athletes and especially rugby players they kind of feel they need to train more than they should at times. Um yeah. and one thing I found that, that was helpful on kind of rest days for for athletes who are desperate to do something was um what you call neural activation workouts yeah 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 um so tell us a bit about them what they are and and how you've used them
0: yeah they, they can either be neural activation or neural charge depending on why you are using them uh i call them neural activation if they are used for example uh to prepare yourself for a game so for example when i worked with pro hockey players and they had a home game in the evening, then we would do a neural activation session in the morning. Uh, Or it can be a neural charge session. So for example, if an athlete just did a very, very grueling neurological session, then we could follow up, either the same day, six hours later, or the next day, depending on the schedule, with a neural charge session. A method simply aimed at increasing the production of neurotransmitter to avoid the crash after a workout. These are also the sessions I would use if an athlete comes into the gym and you can see that neurologically speaking is not there. Uh, you can also objectively test that by testing for grip strength. I mean, you establish a grip strength baseline and if they come into the gym in one day, they are like 10, 15% down uh, or, or more, then you know that their nervous system is shot then you might want to do a neural charge session instead of a regular workout, for example. On the opposite end of the spectrum, if they come in and their grip strength is, for some reason, drastically higher than normal, then it's probably time to test for a PR. Uh, the, the grip strength is the number one indication of neural uh, efficiency, uh, how, how effective the nervous system will be that day. Uh, a, a broad jump or a long, or a vertical jump could also be used, but I prefer the grip strength because it's, it's less technical. Now. Uh, the neural charge sessions. Uh, at first, I only used explosive exercises. So, but, but I'm going to just briefly talk about the concept. The concept of a neural charge session is very simple. It's very brief. First principle: it's very brief, 15 to 25 minutes, no more. Of course, that doesn't include the preparation, warm up, if you do, if you do any. Second is, and that is the most important thing, and it's the hardest thing for athletes to apply. We don't want any fatigue from the session. It's not a training session. It's not a session that will, that is done to create a training effect. There might be a training effect, but it's not the goal. The goal is to recover or to amplify your nervous system so you'll be more functional. So you don't want any fatigue. So that means no metabolic fatigue. So you should never be out of breath. No uh, muscle fatigue. So there should be never any lactic acid accumulation or any drastic decrease in performance. And you don't want any neural fatigue. So at the end, of, you should actually quit the workout when you want to train. Because what will happen when you do a neural charge, especially if you do them to recover, then you walk into the gym, you might not be fully into it. And after the first like, five or 10 minutes, you, you start to get amped up. And the more the workout goes along, the better you feel. And like after 15, 20 minutes, you're on fire you want to lift. Well, that's when you should stop the workout. So, so, so that's why I call it the interrupted coitus training. Because just when it starts to feel good, you have to stop. Because that's when it has the biggest effect. If you continue on, and then you will have a slight decrease in focus, motivation, whatnot, and well-being, uh, you have created the wrong impact. So you're creating fatigue. So that's why you want, I prefer to do it as a circuit although you can simply use pairings or you can even use the exercise as a stand as, as alone. It doesn't really matter. But as, I like the circuit because athletes don't like to stay idle for a long time. So with doing a circuit, you can have like 40 seconds between station. So they get plenty of rest between the same exercise, but it doesn't feel as boring. So it's, it's let's say four exercises done either very explosively. So a jump, a throw, a light Olympic lift, uh, a, a sprint, uh, striking a tire with a sledgehammer—anything that can be done violently fast. Uh, being fast is not enough. It's—it has to be an act of violence. It's not the speed of the movement that has the impact on the neurotransmitters. It's putting your your brain in that fight mode. Uh, you have to do each rep as if you're throwing a punch to someone you hate, okay? And because of that level of intensity, no more than three reps per exercise, all right? Some people can go up to five, but I prefer to force them to do only three so that the quality will be there. And then you have 30, 45 seconds between station. Normally I would alternate one upper body, one lower body, one upper body, one lower body to make sure that there's zero muscle fatigue. Now in the past, I only use explosive exercises. Now, I also use heavy work, but not heavy work lifting, because I don't want to create muscle damage. I don't want to tire out the nervous systems. So it's either isometrics, pushing or pulling against an immovable object for six seconds, no more than that. Uh, or it could be uh, a pretty heavy crawler push, sled drag, or farmer walk, but for no more than 10 seconds. Uh, and not a max effort heavy, but not max effort. So if you have an athlete who's more naturally explosive, stick to only explosive exercises. If you have an athlete who's stronger than he he is explosive, you can use a combination of both. Uh, But again, the rules are no fatigue whatsoever. No more than 20, 25 minutes and more like 15, 20. And zero, uh, every rep has to be done if they're explosive with maximum violence. If you feel yourself slowing down, stop. But so that works mostly by amping up the nervous system by increasing the production of uh, of dopamine uh, and some other neurotransmitters. So it, it helps you recover from those hard sessions. And it also allows you to perform better. So if you have a like an evening match, then you could do a neural charge session six hours earlier, 15 minutes tops, and that the performance will actually be higher. I'm training one of the top uh, wheelchair basketball player in Europe. He's in Spain right now, uh, and uh, we had he had a, a match uh, last Friday. Well, four days ago, uh, last Saturday. Sorry, three days ago, and it was in the evening. So we did a neural charge session in the morning, and he reported it was the game I felt the best in my life. I felt powerful. I felt indestructible. Uh, so so it is that effective if you do it properly.
1: Yeah, awesome. And I, I've used it before with the explosive things. I've, I've never used the strength. That might be good for some of the props well, You can't go wrong with explosive. You, you,
0: yeah. can, you can't go wrong with explosive. I mean, if they are tightly coached, isometrics work great also. But like farmers, walk and prowler, athletes might tend to overdo it. But you can't go wrong with explosive.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, I follow you on social media and things. I've seen some stuff about you doing a, a ketogenic diet. Do you want to talk about yeah, that? It'd yeah. be quite interesting.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a, well, I've, uh, I've always dieted down using low carbs when I wanted to get lean. Uh, I've, I've done keto, but that was like 15 years ago. Well, let, let's say 14 years ago when I was competing in bodybuilding. I did keto... Uh, for the last bodybuilding competition I did because I was really into Vince Gironda. And Vince Gironda used uh, like a, his definition diet was tons of eggs, tons of full cream, some cheese and stuff like that. And that's what I did back then. And it worked. So I said, well, I'm going to like now keto being all the the rage. Now I, I did it when I was younger. I didn't know much about it. I just did what Vince Gironda did. So I, I really want to understand why it works and how it works and how to tailor it to somebody to, to some people uh, at first I, I did it by myself and I, I went the. Uh, I, I used the same thing I did when I was using Gironda's diet so eggs uh, full fat cream cheese and within three days my blood pressure went from uh, 115 over 70 75 uh, to 160 over 110 <laughs> so of course like being really really sensitive about that because of my kidney I panicked so I stopped keto, and I announced it on social medias. Uh, and my friend, Joe Binley, who's a, a top nutritionist for, in bodybuilding, and he's a specialist in, in ketogenic diet, well, and we're friends, so he said, well, well let, me, let me handle you. I'm going to do your diet, and you, you follow up and stuff like that because you can totally do that like, be, and while being healthy. So I've been working with Joe for four weeks, well, three weeks really, and it's been great. My blood pressure is down now to 110 over, over 70. Uh, it took us about two weeks to find the right recipe for me. But at first, we found the right types of fat. Uh, so I moved away from the, the, all the saturated. I, I still keep some saturated in the form of egg yolk and beef, but I have a lot more monounsaturated like, uh, like olive oil. Uh, I have uh, more um, avocado. I have uh, uh, more fish oil. I have lots of salmon. Uh, so it's like healthier fat. So that I, during that first portion, my blood pressure went down really, really fast. But my body weight was just like dropping like crazy. I went from uh, – I'm going to talk in kilos here. Uh, I'm going to – I went from 94 kilos – well, 93 kilos to 88 kilos in like a week. But I was freaking <laughs> out. Once I – so it's like way too much for me. Uh, so the second week, we increased – we did a one carb up just to have a, like a new starting point. So then we increased calories, increased fat, and after, like now, now my body weight is stable. So it's uh, like 93, 94-ish keto. I don't want to get leaner right now. I just want to be able uh, to keep training hard uh, because when I was, uh, that initial week training just sucked. I didn't want to be in the gym. Now it's awesome. In fact, I'm, I find myself doing way more volume than I had planned because I have a lot more energy. Uh, I don't need, need to take nap anymore. I, I always needed to take naps. I don't need to take naps. Uh, uh, I'm a lot more focused. I'm a lot more productive. I mean, hence the 60-page the guide that I did in, in two or three days on top of writing four articles, including three in one day, and working my website. So I'm super productive, of course, with my 50-plus uh, online clients to take care of. So I was super productive, and you know what is the number one sign for me that my brain is functioning better is that now I'm not watching Netflix anymore. I'm reading. You know, for the past three or four months, I watched Netflix about three or four hours a day, and I I, I every time I started to I I love reading, not just like uh, nonfiction. I like fiction books, like uh, novels. But every time I tried to read a novel, I would stop after two pages because it just bore me to death or I would fall asleep. Now, I, I bought like the new Dan Brown book and I've been reading it only today and it, I'm more than halfway done in only the first half of the day. So to me, when I don't want to watch Netflix and I want to read it, tells me my brain is in a better working state. So yeah, it's the, the first week was all about finding the right fats. Second week was about finding the right uh, caloric requirement, and now what we're doing is we're playing with gradually adding some carbs uh, specifically placed place in my day so I have uh, 25 to 30 grams around the workout not enough to mess up the fat adaptation but it actually gives me better slightly better workouts so we're playing with how much amount I can get away with so of course I I measure my my ketone level with a, a ketone meter to see how much carb I can get away with and Joe even thinks that I'm going to be able to get away with uh, two carbs meal meals a day, like on, let's say, on Wednesday and Saturday, for example, or on Sunday. So it's not, Keto is not just about you have to eat all fat. It, it, it can be tailored to everybody. I mean, you, a keto diet can actually be as high as 100 grams of carbs for some people. If you're very, very active and you are super lean and fat adapted, you can actually have a decent amount of carbs. It's just that those initial phases where you have to get fat adapted first and where carbs have to be very, very low until you, you start producing lots of ketones.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. so far, like,
0: the, the only thing I, I the, the weird thing is I get zero cravings. And, and I'm a sugar bug. I mean, I, there's, and I once gained 12 kilos in six hours eating only crap. Uh, <laughs> I can eat donuts. I, I could probably eat like 100 donuts in one sitting without any trouble. Now, I have once ate 50, but I also ate ice cream and stuff like that. I mean, I love sweets, but I'm not getting any cravings. But I miss eating sweets. I, I want to eat them because I like them, but, but I don't feel the need for them. In the past, when I did a regular low-carb diet with typical bodybuilding diet, so high-protein, high moderate-fat, low-carbs, uh, I would always get bad carb cravings.
1: Yeah and it's interesting to hear you talk about your work with your nutritionist and cuz I think sometimes people think you know you you just get given a, a kind of meal plan and and that's it you go on and no, crack Joe, on with it I but...
0: have to I have to send him I have to send him selfies every morning which I hate doing <laughs> I hate doing that with a vengeance so I have to send him a selfie every day morning weight morning blood pressure uh, and he makes daily adjustments to my diet of yeah. course now that we've pretty much figured out the proper caloric intake for me, he won't be making any drastic changes to my, my regular diet, unless I tell him why I want to get a bit leaner, I want to get more muscle, then he got to play with Now it's just a matter of finding out how many carbs I can get away with. So he asked me to measure my uh, blood ketones post-workout to see how fast I can get back to ketosis. Uh, in the morning to see if I've, after a carb meal, for example, so we can develop the optimal strategy of when to add carbs. Because some people uh, some people can mess up, like the traditional, like the anabolic diet by Mauro Di Pasquale, where you had the whole weekend of high carbs. Uh, you can basically throw yourself out of ketosis and it would take you two more weeks to get adapted. So you never truly need ketosis. So some people can actually get away with one day of carbs. Some people, can't get any carbs so it's all a matter of finding what works for optimizing the diet for that person because let's not kid ourselves ketones are great for brain energy and it's great for endurance activities but it will never be an efficient fuel source for very intense muscle contractions carbohydrates will always be more effective so if you can get away with carbs especially around the workout on a keto diet and stay in a keto state, then it will always be an advantage training-wise and muscle-wise because it will keep IGF-1 levels more elevated. So it's all a matter of first establishing that ketosis state, then finding out if you can tolerate carbs, even a small amount is better than nothing because people don't, spend, don't burn as much carbs as they think they do during a lifting workout. I mean, 30 grams of carbs around workout is making a huge difference in my quality of my workout, in the pump, and in the volume I can do. So if you can get away with that, it's a benefit. But if you don't measure it, if you don't measure ketone levels, if you don't work with somebody who knows what he's doing, then it's very easy to go overboard.
1: Yeah, and Ivan, just what what is your training like at the moment? Uh,
0: Well, I I started out, when I started my keto experiment, uh, I, I wanted to do more of a, like, Uh, I I don't want to say a CrossFit hybrid because it's not CrossFit it was uh, like uh, the strength portion was pretty much like the west side barbell kind of training like conjugate system but I I wanted to add lots of conditioning work so uh, assault bike uh, medley circuits stuff like that pulling the sled pushing the product because I want to get back in in top I'm I'm in good shape visually but I'm not in good athletic shape and I kind of miss that because for my photo shoot i did mostly bodybuilding training what happened is that i i that was stupid of me because i did that type of training while i was working on finding the right amount of calories for me so i was in a very high deficit i was not yet keto adapted and i was doing that very high uh, high intensity i i out uh output kind of training so i crashed after three days i i i that's when my body weight was super low i felt like shit. I couldn't train, so so I switched back to more of a bodybuilding kind of training, uh, and now I'm feeling great. So eventually, I will go back to including gradually performance element, but but only one at a time. So I will have first I will have some heavy lifting at the beginning of my workouts. Then I will have some explosive work. Then I will have the conditioning, but only provided that I keep feeling good.
1: Yeah. Uh, Christian, I, I don't,
0: I don't think that keto. Even though some CrossFit purists might, might disagree, I don't believe that keto diet is a great diet for CrossFit or any kind of sports with the same kind of energy requirement. Yeah. Uh, with endurance sport and resistance sport, it can work very, very, very well. But with those very high intensity output I, I sports, I. I I think being able to have some carbohydrates will always lead to better performances,
1: yeah definitely uh now christian, i know you're you're gonna be over in Europe in November. do not you uh, tell our listeners uh, about what you're doing over there and uh, and how they can find out more
0: yeah i'm gonna be in the, in Germany in November eleventh and twelfth and then and then the next weekend i'm I'm really bad with numbers so may do the math so it's gonna be the I would guess the 17th and 18th of November. I'm going to be in France. Of course, uh, that's going to be in French. But in both both cases, it's going to be I'm going to be presenting about how to design training programs uh, based on someone's neurological profile. Uh, so I will cover. I also cover body types, of course, and fiber dominance. But it's mostly about. Uh, the neurological profile what kind of training methods they can use how to build the training sessions how to build a training phase and how to build a training program that is uh, several phases
1: excellent and uh, once again christian it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast obviously as i said you're privileged to be the this the, the first kind of repeat repeat podcast and uh, as as always it's been full of loads of info for the listeners and uh, appreciate that thank you very much
0: appreciate that any any time if you want me again um i mean I, I we only covered like the first two pages of my 60 pages met-
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah well yeah definitely that that would be great and uh, and when you release that let us know and we'll obviously promote that and um sure and that will uh probably excite more great. more questions for me to ask you
0: <laughs> yes sir
1: excellent christian thank you very much
0: All right, take care,
1: man. So I'm sure you'll agree. Another great podcast from Christian. I really appreciate him uh, taking the time to come on again for the second time on the podcast and uh, share such a wealth of information. Uh, I'm sure there's tons you can take from that. Uh, so please if you enjoyed it give it a five star review uh, like it share it with your friends and of course subscribe to us on uh, iTunes SoundCloud Stitcher TuneIn whatever you use for podcasts and of course keep checking us out at rugbyrenegade.com more podcasts on the way
0: Thanks for listening to the Rugby Renegade podcast. For more quality rugby strength and conditioning information, check us out at RugbyRenegade.com. Rugby Renegade. Renegade. Renegade, building machines.